Community College presents Diabetes into the New Decade. It's, it's a, a stunning, just incredible number of people with both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. At least 150,000 people in uh, the northern New Jersey area. If you go uh, a, further, a little further down, touching into Essex and Hudson County, you're talking about even larger numbers. Diabetes, undiagnosed diabetes, is the underlying, uh, a major underlying cause of heart disease, kidney disease, neuropathy, and blindness. I suspect that the numbers are even greater because in type 2, uh, people tend not to be di properly diagnosed. It's a serious problem um, getting people aware of the signs and symptoms so that, and, and educating the medical profession too so that they really can get the proper diagnosis and get the proper care. Joyce Nicholson is the executive director for the Bergen County, New Jersey chapter of the American Diabetes Association. My role is really uh, to facilitate uh, the, the ability of, of our many wonderful volunteers to utilize their background and experience and interest to the best way possible for each volunteer. And that's really the best part of my job is, is being a facilitator for the volunteers. And um, really, I like to emphasize that when a volunteer comes in, no matter what, what he or she might do, whether it's helping uh, with administrative uh, support or working on one of the committees, fundraising or patient education or public education or professional education, um, whatever they're doing, I like to emphasize that they are filling a role as if they were professionals. They each are doing something very, very important, and they find a lot of pleasure in it, too. They, the camaraderie that's developed among the volunteers, and we get to feel like we're a big family working for a very, very important cause, and we are. We uh, set up education programs, and, and we try to vary these throughout the the area so that they are more accessible in different, to different people in different parts of northern New Jersey. We also uh, send out a newsletter to the uh, diabetes community, letting them know of our events and different uh, helpful um, uh, information uh, that is included in this. We are a referral agency for uh, medical people, for doctors if they need uh, help in finding uh, proper care. We set up support groups. We have um, a very active uh, young adult group that we are, are trying to uh, emphasize that's open to anyone 18 to 40 to their mid-40s. Uh, we have a parent-child group that is of support primarily to the parents in raising uh, young children who, with diabetes. And we, we have um, uh, an important youth program, youth leadership program for uh, diabetic teenagers and we send uh, some of them to le for leadership training and we try to set up a hotline where they are available to reach out to other diabetic teenagers. We also uh, have a funding, uh, a funding program to send um, diabetic children to Camp Najetta and we are also setting up um, programs within the hospital support support groups within the hospitals and uh, trying to get that established in each of the hospitals throughout northern New Jersey. And we're making good progress with that thanks to the wonderful volunteer professionals. Throughout the year, workshops and seminars are organized in an effort to educate the public about diabetes. One such recent seminar titled Living Well with Diabetes was organized by the Hackensack Medical Center in Hackensack, New Jersey. In addition to guest speakers and a panel discussion which fielded questions from the audience, 
A variety of educational displays and demonstrations preceded the formal lectures. We have a group of information that's presented by Hackensack Hospital, the Living Well with Diabetes, that's edited by uh, most of the people who are working in the diabetic unit. We have most of our information from all the different companies, uh, B&D and so forth. We put out a display for the patients of the different types of scans that we're using to monitor their self-blood uh, glucose at home. Uh, we're trying to explain it briefly to them so that they would have an auspice of knowing what was available. We're also then directing them to different groups so that they would be better have an, um, almost like a demonstration of it because we don't have that right now. We're working with dietary, so when they have a question about dietary, they're coming down to us. Okay, we're providing them with information about foot care, also providing a book for any patients that are uh, pediatric patients. Who are the participants in this conference? Are they mostly patients? Are they doctors? Most of them are patients who are coming, the pa people who are here, and or some health practitioners from the area. What the patient does is they insert the strip, turn the power button on, we'll give you a code, and you just make sure the code matches the bottle. If it doesn't match, you just change it on the bottom. And it tells you what to do step by step. So apply sample, we open the door, and I'm going to pretend this is my blood, this is just my sample. That's all you need is 10 microliters of blood, a very small sample. And it will now beep and it says close door. So I close the door and now we just wait 45 seconds. You don't have to press a button to start the timing. There's no blotting and there's no wiping technique involved. Oh, nice. Very you should use these in the hospital instead of the wiping rooms. I know it. They really should. What does your pharmaceutical company do specifically for diabetic patients? We manufacture an oral hypoglycemic uh, for the diabetic patient. What that actually does is it it hits the pancreas and uh, tells the pancreas to produce more insulin so that they can help control their blood sugars. Is there any new technology in, in your company that's going to be coming out soon? Uh, new uh, oral hypoglycemics are currently being worked on. Uh, to, date, to, to say anything about them to date would be a little premature. Uh, however, I would like to mention a program that uh, concerns our product Diabeta, uh, we, it's called uh, the Diabetes Research and Education Foundation. And every time a prescription is written by a physician for Diabeta, 5% of the value of that prescription is donated to the Diabetes Research and Education Foundation for small research grants and also patient education programs such as this. So uh, there are, in a sense, the patient tends to get something back every time they get the prescription filled. Could you just explain a little bit about the display you have here? Basically what we're displaying here is just the different um, forms of humulin insulin that are available through Lilly. With, with insulin there's different kinds available, different acting um, insulin, there's long acting, short acting and whatnot. This is basically just service things for the patients. There's a uh, pamphlet here on traveling with, with your insulin, one on storing your insulin, one about the eyes, one of the things with diabetics is they should take care of their eyes and just basic other informational things to benefit the patients. You have a little, what looks like a credit card there. Could you explain that? Basically, the, what this is here is when the, the uh, diabetic goes into the pharmacy, they can put down here what kind of insulin they take so they don't have any confusion or get the wrong vial. On the back, what's nice about this is let's, whoever, let's say there was an emergency, let's them know they are diabetic. One of the things with diabetes is they may be confused for being intoxicated when they, when they have a, a reaction with the insulin. So it just lets the person know that they are a diabetic and this they can carry in their wallet. Could you tell me a little bit about this new humulin? It's uh, kind of uh, new technology. Sure. Humulin's made from recombinant DNA technology. Basically what happens is when we're done with the end product, it's exactly similar 
for what the human body makes out of the pancreas. Years ago, we used animal source insulin coming from both the beef or pork. Now, with new technology, we're able to reproduce identical insulin. It's called humulin insulin made by recombinant DNA. What does this mean for the diabetic? It means for the diabetic, it's a pure insulin product. With a pure product, less the body recognizes that it's pure and doesn't react as much. You don't have formation of antibodies. Occasionally, antibodies will get involved and they cause a person to either have reactions where it lets go of the insulin or binds the insulin. This way, their control is tougher to control. With the human product, control can be a little bit easier to, to sustain. No way of running out of it either. No, exactly. That's another, it's a good point you bring up because what we looked into as a company was obviously we're, we're dependent on both animal source, both pig and cow insulin. And what happens is as the diabetic population grows, the source is less and less. And with better medical care, these diabetics are living longer and we're finding more diabetics. So it was a production problem also. This way here, there will never be a shortage of insulin. A highlight of the conference was provided by Dr. Daniel L. Lorber, Assistant Clinical Professor of Medicine at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York and a member of the Diabetes Control Foundation. He informed the participants of some exciting research which might someday prevent most of the complications associated with diabetes. It's worked predominantly by Dr. Michael Bramley, who's now at Albert Einstein College of Medicine and was at Rockefeller University before. And what he's doing is working on drugs to inhibit what's called cross-linking of collagen. Glucose provides a bridge between proteins that shouldn't be bridged, that the Lord didn't design to be bridged. And proteins that normally should be flexible and flow easily over each other end up stuck to each other because of this glucose bridge, the glycosylation process it's called, of, of, of proteins. What Mike Brownlee is working on is a way of preventing that bridge from forming. And if he can do that, um, he will prevent many, if not all, probably many, probably not all, of the diabetic complications. For the diabetic, a support group can afford an important outlet for sharing feelings, asking questions, and learning how to better cope with diabetes. Joyce Nicholson explains the American Diabetes Association's role in organizing support groups for the diabetic community. Our challenge is to try to better understand how we can meet people's needs so that they, they will utilize the availability of support groups. I would say that right now the young adult group is the most consistently active group um, and a successfully functioning group and they combine not only education programs and just support a camaraderie with, with getting to know one another, but they also have social outings that they enjoy together. And um, I, I would say that that is, tends to be the most successful. I think the greatest need now is to increase our ability to provide support for uh, parents and, and young children and the teenagers. Uh, the, the older senior uh, uh, persons with diabetes um, quite frequently will take the initiative to seek out support groups and are more likely to take advantage of of the programs that we uh, advertise through our newsletter and in the newspapers. Uh, it's the the younger ones that I think that that we need to be uh, find out how to how to better meet their needs. Where the support group comes in in so uh, in such a great need is for the parents to to have support into how to be balanced in their approach to their diabetic child, uh, to be there for them with cons concern, but not to uh, bring 
too much overbearing concern so that the child becomes identified only as someone with diabetes. It's a hard thing to, to learn how to do, and that's why I think that the, um, the need for a support system for the parents of children and teenagers, too, for those parents is, is quite, uh, quite important for us to try to bring help to them. How do you organize a support group? You say you have volunteers. Are they volunteer doctors, volunteer nurses? How does the group function? Well, it it um, it can be with or without the the uh, medical uh, personnel involved. Uh, we, for example, with our young adult group and with our our child uh, parent child group, typically we have. Uh, someone with a diabetes education um, professional background, a nurse who's a uh, certified diabetes educator, or we will have a, a um, diabetologist physician who is a regular advisor who will come to the groups. Uh, but just as likely, we might have somebody who's who's really lived with diabetes who acts as a coordinator of the group at least part of the time. And it can be that anyone interested can set can be the, um, the, the focus for uh, uh, finding a meeting site, for example, someone's home. And then our, our uh, uh, job then would be to help publicize uh, the day that these people would prefer to have it on and the time and the place, and we would, we would support them with finding um, a professional to come and speak sometime or to help guide the group, and we would support them by having proper public relations so that pe- the community would know the availability of these support groups. Support groups frequently include guest speakers. Dr. Stephen Kurtz, Director of Psychological Services for the Diabetes Control Foundation in Flushing, New York, is a frequent lecturer at many of these meetings. I, I think that, that if there's something that people appreciate about having a chance to come and talk with me, it's the fact that I don't deny the reality of the burden. It is a burden. And I think the fact that they can come to a health professional who understands that and who doesn't try and minimize that or deny it, and working with people, I try and set very, very reasonable goals, actually to help them set very, very reasonable goals. In fact, around the country, I'm sort of known for Kurtz's rule, which is divide by three. If somebody thinks they're going to exercise seven days a week, after not exercising at all, we divide by three and start at two days a week, or two and a third to be exact. If they think they're going to cut down to lower their calories by 1,000 calories a day, we start by trying to lower it 300 calories a day, you know, approximately a third. And I think that's what one of the things that patients appreciate about coming to see me, which is that it's not a threatened approach. It's a reasonable approach based on what can you do, you know, given the push-pull between wanting to be a perfect patient and wanting to have a normal lifestyle. And in one of the slides that I use in my lectures, it shows a a figure stretched between two ropes, stretched by two ropes. And on one side is perfect patient, the other side is normal lifestyle. And I think having somebody who identifies that feeling for people and and gives it a label and a way to feel normal about their experience uh, is what makes the services here worthwhile to people. You mentioned exercise and dividing it by three. You mentioned uh, diets. Diet seems to be a big factor in diabetes. Do people come to you for counseling on how to maintain their diets, or do they talk to you mainly about exercise? People who 
come generally are referred by a doctor who is frustrated. At that point, the patient is generally frustrated too, and they're frustrated because they have been sort of warned and admonished to do everything all at once, and somehow it hasn't worked. Or patients will hear me doing a lecture and get a sense that there's a more gradual approach to getting in good control. 90% of people with diabetes have adult onset diabetes. Of those 90%, 90% of that 90% is significantly overweight, which makes weight the first and foremost issue for them to deal with in terms of uh, reducing the need for medication, in terms of getting their diabetes in better control. When you're significantly overweight, you're talking about something on the order of 20, 30, 40, 50 or more pounds. What most people do not realize is that simply a weight loss of some 10 to 15 pounds can significantly improve the diabetes control, even though they'll still be technically obese or technically very much overweight. It takes much less of a weight loss than most people realize. And so for me, that's often the first goal. By the time you're significantly overweight, exercise is not only out of your repertoire, it's painful. And so it, it takes a gradual easing in, and people think of exercise as Jane Fonda in front of a uh, you know, Stairmaster for an hour. Exercise to me, for an, for an adult who's overweight, is walking around the block once, and then increasing it to twice, and then maybe increasing the speed a little bit, but it's a very gradual, not overwhelming sort of experience. If we look at average blood sugars, they just aren't normal. Most people with diabetes do not maintain normal blood sugars. One of my pet peeves is doctors complaining about patients not telling them the truth. And in fact, in some interesting research, it's been shown that adults will misrepresent about a quarter to a third of their blood sugar readings. So that when the doctor is looking at a blood sugar logbook where patients write down their blood sugars, on average, about a third or 30% of those numbers never happened. And so we as health professionals have to deal with the problem, which is why the patients feel they can't be upfront with us. And so one of my sort of self-defined missions in, in this world of diabetes care is to get health professionals realizing that we need to be more understanding and to communicate that we do understand that there's no such thing as perfect adherence. There's elegant and interesting research that's been repeated numerous times showing that healthcare professionals have among the lowest adherence rates to medical regimens of any group of people studied. So, uh, for example, in one interesting study done in Florida that was recently published, they had the parents of children with diabetes live with the diabetes regimen for a week. The group of parents that did that, their children in the next six months had significantly better blood sugars than a group of parents who met for the same amount of time but didn't do a simulation living with diabetes. And when I've done those simulations with parents myself, they've had profound effects on the parents and on the kids, knowing that the parents now finally understand some of what it means to live with diabetes. In addition to advancements in blood glucose monitors and the production of biosynthetic human insulin made by recombinant DNA technology, Recent research and development has shown exciting results in other areas as well. An example is in the field of surgery, 
a procedure which was once very risky for the diabetic patient. Dr. Howard Katzman, senior attending surgeon and director of the Vascular Laboratory, Cedars Medical Center, Miami, Florida. Well, there are a number of uh, areas in the diabetic that uh, vascular disease has a particularly uh, devastating effect on. Uh, many of them have to do with the uh, circulation, and in particular, uh, the uh, blood supply of the uh, feet and the, the fingers, toes, uh, are affected by um, diabetes. And also, diabetics have a increased rate of development of atherosclerosis, or hardening of the arteries. The first thing is to make the diagnosis and separate what is, is just a small vessel disease of diabetes and what is a combination of hardening of the arteries and small vessel disease. And testing that can be done in the vascular laboratory helps differentiate that. That testing is done without any kind of needles or dyes or injections into the patient. It's done by measuring blood flow non-invasively. Of course, when you're doing the surgery, you have to be aware of the, the uh, insulin requirements, the blood sugars, uh, diet management. Uh, wound healing may be delayed. Um, antibiotic therapy may have to be used uh, where you might not use it in an otherwise healthy patient. Uh, but as far as the reconstructive surgery is concerned, the techniques are the same. There is a team involved. The surgeon does not work independent of the endocrinologist or the internist uh, helping manage uh, the patient's overall metabolic status and also not independent of the anesthesiologist who has an effect on all of this with the various kinds of drugs that are used. So it is a very close-knit uh, uh, teamwork that gets the diabetic patients through reconstructive vascular surgery. How critical are complications during surgery for the diabetic patient? Oh, they're extremely critical. Uh, the diabetics reserve uh, for complications, particularly those of, uh, of infection, um, that's not as good as someone who doesn't have that problem. The uh, reserve, uh, as far as hemorrhage, technical complications I think is about the same but wound infections are a real problem do you see any in the near future any uh, developments that might be beneficial to the diabetic in terms of vascular surgery yes uh, there are a lot of uh, exciting things on the horizon for this um, we are already using uh, techniques known as balloon angioplasty which is fixing arteries without actually operating on them, uh, using various kinds of catheters and balloons to stretch narrowed areas. We'll no doubt see the use of uh, laser energy in uh, helping reopen uh, short segments of blocked arteries. Um, and uh, I expect there'll be some new drug therapies uh, coming along the line that might useful in these settings. Dr. Rhoda Coben, Assistant Clinical Professor of Medicine at Mount Sinai Medical School, New York City, outlines some additional research that shows promise for the future treatment of diabetes. Some of the most fascinating research has to do with the genetics and the immunology or immunobiology of type 1 diabetes. 
And that may actually get us to the point one day where we're able to identify, using genetic markers, who might be susceptible to developing diabetes and be able to head it off at the path, perhaps with some sort of a vaccine that will keep the body from developing these antibodies against the pancreas. So in other words, blocking antibodies could be developed so that if a susceptible person did run into a virus or did have a problem that might lead to diabetes, perhaps it could be blocked. Now, those studies are really very early. This is a long, long way off. We're talking about test tube studies and animal studies, but they show a lot of promise because they're going to get at the root cause of the diabetes and type 1 diabetes. Um, in type 2 diabetes, the most interesting basic science research that's going on is studying the insulin receptor um, to look at what goes wrong and why it can't attach to insulin properly and again what things might be available to affect the receptor to actually change the chemistry of the receptor. We know that changing weight changes the receptor so maybe we could look at how or why that that um, influence occurs. Um, there have recently been some studies done on mutant insulins, in other words, abnormal insulins that are insulin, but that don't act properly. And some type 2 diabetics, again, don't have a receptor problem, but they actually have abnormal insulin, and some of that may be genetic as well, so that looking at the receptors and looking at the kinds of insulin not immediately, but down the road, is going to help us to identify people at risk and perhaps to change things so that they, um, they can be uh, affected before they actually cause overt diabetes. Now, on the practical end of things, uh, not 100 years down the road or um, looking at animals or cells and tissue culture, um, there are two areas that are two general uh, research branches that are going on. The first one is uh, a study that many diabetics are aware of, which is called the Diabetes Treatment and Contr Treatment Control and Complication Study, which is a multi-center study that's enrolling thousands of people with diabetes to try to pin down exactly what these correlations are between control and complications, and how tight must the control be, and what things can we do to intervene before complications occur or when they occur at a very early stage, can we affect them? There's a, a drug that's being used, for instance, to try to um, decrease or head off diabetic kidney disease when it's at a very, very early stage to see if we can get it to, to go into remission, to, to not progress. All of that is going on across the country in many, many different university um, hospitals and many thousands of patients are enrolled, and it's already beginning to see fruit. It's already in its, um, about its, its eighth or ninth year, and there are some data that are coming out of that, again, that are helping us with patient control because they're telling us that, yes, the better control people are doing better already, even at this early stage. Though Lenore has suffered from complications since the age of 51, diabetes has not halted her from living a full life. From her experiences, she has learned the importance of good control and hopes that her knowledge can be handed down to others suffering from this chronic disease. I was not a very religious person, but I believe that I'm alive today 
because God did not want me to die. Uh, and if I can help somebody or do something for somebody, maybe that's why I'm here. And if I can show people, even the people here who uh, uh, need rehabilitation, I do wonders. I climb stairs. I dance. I do wonderful things. And if I can show these people that I can do it, and I don't let them complain to me. Complaining gets to be a... Um, you get into the the uh, habit of complaining. Uh, oh, this hurts me. Oh, that hurts me. And I say, "Good morning." And I and I say, "How are you?" And if they say, "Not so good today," I say, "That's not what you're supposed to say. You're supposed to say, I'm a fighter and I'm fine." Diabetes Into the New Decade was written and produced by Marshall Katzman. Technical assistance was provided by Jack Durr. Special thanks to Nancy Zobeline, RN, Certified Diabetes Educator, Englewood Hospital, Dr. William J. Muster, Ridgewood, New Jersey, Professor Regina Moore, Bergen Community College, and the Hackensack Medical Center. The presenter was Marshall Katzman. This is Amelia Duggan speaking.